listening to the podcast of Village Church in Burbank, California. To learn more about Village Church, visit our website at villagechurchburbank.org. We hope you enjoy today's message. All right, good evening. It is uh, great to be here with you on this beautiful Saturday night. I've been enjoying, I've been enjoying the weather, haven't you? A little bit of rain, not a bad thing, and some cooler weather, really nice. And um, what a great night to be together. All of our Dodgers fans, I guess, are coming tomorrow morning. <laughs> and we'll see. It's either going to be really exciting, a really joyful service, or the opposite. <laughs> but we'll find out. Um, so yeah, we're going through the Beatitudes. It's been really fun. It's been really fun to see just uh, a whole church of people that have really come around us together. You know, um, be one thing to just preach a sermon series on the Beatitudes, but it, all of the discussion that's taking place, all of the praying, the memorizing, I think all of that's wonderful. And, um, and I do have my, my book on the Beatitudes that is out now. Uh, over in the back of the auditorium, Jesus People, Communities Formed by the Beatitudes. And that's another way to connect with them. Um, somebody was asking me, well, when you preach on the Beatitudes, are you, you know, how does that relate to the book? And the book takes you much deeper, and there's, there's a lot of extra content there. So, um, you know, if you're interested in going a little deeper in your reflections on the Beatitudes, I highly recommend my book. Um, but anyway, you're getting, it, you're getting it from me here. This is the only place where you'll get it at my cost you know, if you, if you buy it on Amazon, that's fine, but uh, you're going to pay a whole lot more. But this is at my cost. In fact, it's probably not quite my cost, uh, so you're, you're getting a bargain on it. But anyway, this, uh, this weekend, we're, we're now on the third beatitude that we're going to look at. And, um, you know, as I was working through my sermon this week, throughout the week, you know, going through it over and over, and every time I went through it, it just came out a little bit differently. So um, I'm not exactly sure exactly how this is going to come out tonight. We're going to find out together. But uh, Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 through 5, we'll just kind of start, start from the beginning here. Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 through 5, and then we're going to pray. Now Jesus, when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him and he began to teach them. He said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Now, Father, one more time, we pause to consecrate these next few moments completely to you. As best we know how, we eliminate every distraction. Externally, internally, as an act of worship, we put aside everything else. And we want to devote our entire self to hearing from you, even through the frailty of a human communicator. May your voice be heard. May we encounter you deeply in your word tonight. May your kingdom agenda be established in our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. Thousands and thousands of people have traveled from miles around, from every direction, and they have gathered at 
the base of a certain mountain. They've kind of swarmed upon the northwestern shore of the Sea of Galilee. They've gathered at the base of the mountain, and they're looking up because this famed young upstart prophet Jesus of Nazareth is about to speak and give this famous sermon. Now, I want us to think about this crowd just as we get started here this evening. I want us to think about who's in this crowd. It's a mishmash of people. There's, there's a mixed multitude of people that are gathered together. For instance, on one hand, you have um, what we might call ultra-Orthodox Jews, highly, highly religious Jews. By and large, these are a lot of them, they've, they've traveled north from Jerusalem and Judea. These are people who are intensely devout, and they're very careful to keep kosher, to keep their Sabbath laws, their dietary laws, ceremonial laws. You know, they're very, very, very cognizant of that kind of thing. So these are hyper-religious Jews. They're in the crowd. Then you have another category of Jews that we might just call moderately religious Jews, you know, a lot of these folks would have been from right around this region of Galilee. You know, these are people who certainly have a commitment uh, to their religious faith. The synagogue, the local synagogue is very important to them, um, though they're not really obsessive about it. These are farmers. These are fishermen. These are shepherds. You know, they've got busy lives. They've got other things that they're, you know, thinking about all the time. And so while their religious faith certainly is very important, they have a very authentic uh, commitment to God, uh, they're not like overly obsessive about it. They're in the crowd. Thirdly, you have that group of people who always seem to be around Jesus, just plain old sinners, tax collectors, prostitutes, people who have abandoned religious life altogether. It just hasn't worked out for them. They just, they don't seem to be cut out for it. And yet, there's something about Jesus they find irresistibly attractive. They're in the crowd. Interestingly enough, we learn that there's another group of people as well. At the end of chapter 4, we learn that there's a group of people who have come from the um, eastern side of the Jordan River from a region called the Decapolis. This is a Greek settlement. It was settled hundreds of years before by Alexander the Great. So these are Gentiles. These are Greeks with their learning and their art and their philosophy. They're mixed into this crowd as well. And then finally... Of course, there would have been some Roman soldiers in this crowd. Anytime a huge mass of people are gathered together in first century Galilee, I guarantee you there would have been some Roman soldiers there to monitor, to make sure that they're not passing out swords trying to start a rebellion, because that was pretty common in first century Galilee. It was, a very, it was a hotbed of revolutionary activity. So the Romans, these Roman soldiers, this representative force of, of the dominant military superpower of the age, the Roman Empire, they're in the crowd. So, so notice you have a wide range of people that have gathered at the base of this mountain. You have the hyper-religious, the moderately religious, the irreligious. You have the people who are at the top of society, the Romans. You have the sophisticated Greeks. But you also have those everyday peasants who are just trying to scratch out a living on their farms. The whole spectrum of humanity is gathered at the base of this mountain. 
And it's in this environment that Jesus announces the third beatitude. Have you memorized it? Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Now, as Jesus says this, as the words come out of his mouth, I can just see in my mind's eye these Roman soldiers smirking at one another. Did you hear what this guy just said? He said the meek are going to inherit the earth. You see, these Romans, they're not as sophisticated as the Greeks with their poetry and their arts and their philosophy. You know, the Greeks were sort of like the uh, Ivy Leaguers of the ancient world. But the real winners of the game at this stage of history were the Romans. Because the Romans have conquered the world. And they didn't inherit it. They took it. They seized it. They conquered it. And they didn't get it by being meek either. They got it through force, through violence, through power. They got it by being more organized than everyone else. The Romans knew how to build roads. They knew how to establish currency. They knew how to build sound systems of governmental structure. Most importantly, they knew how to have a really big army. And so the Romans... You know, they're, it's like this ever-increasing empire in size. They're, they just take the earth for themselves. And here's how they would do it. The Romans would show up on the doorstep of your country, your nation, your culture, your people who have been living a certain way for thousands of years. And the Romans would show up and say, hello, we're the Romans. And we're here to take you over. You are now going to obey our laws. You're now going to salute our emperor, and most importantly, you're going to pay our taxes. And if you refuse to do any of this, we are going to crush you. This is how Caesar built his empire, all the way from Syria in the east to Spain in the west, this massive territory. They've taken ownership, they've claimed it, they've seized it, and if you got in their way, they'd kill you. And it's in this historical moment that Jesus of Nazareth announces, blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Now, how many of you agree with Jesus, just right off the bat? How many of you agree with what Jesus is saying? Well, of course you do. I mean, if, if we confess that Jesus is Lord, we're kind of obligated to agree with him. But can we just be honest here this Saturday night? What he's saying here doesn't make sense at least to a certain way of thinking, it just doesn't make any, I mean, you look at the world today, look how the world is running, look who owns the world today, look who dominates the world today, and, and it sure doesn't look like the meek, it sure looks like the winners, the go-getters, the movers and shakers, the large and in charge, these are the people who get the earth, and the meek, you know, they just kind of get whatever's left over, which if we're honest, it's not very much. They just have to make do as best they can. So it just doesn't seem like Jesus making sense here, but he uses a very interesting word that I want to draw your focus to. He says, blessed are the meek, for they will, say it, inherit the earth. To inherit something is a very different concept than to take something, to seize it to conquer it. An inheritance is received. 
If you inherit something from your parents, you didn't do anything to earn it. It's graciously bequeathed to you simply because you had the good luck of being born their child. And Jesus announces that the earth is going to be inherited. And it's going to be inherited, he says, by the meek. Now, there's a word that we don't like in our society. We don't like the word meek. And here's why I think we don't like the word meek, because it rhymes with weak. And that's what we assume meekness is. We think meekness is weakness. And the poets and the hymn writers confuse us even more because they like the alliteration. So in their songs and in their poems, they pair the word meek with the word mild. Meek and mild. And like, who, who wants to be mild? Who wants to be called mild? Like mild salsa, you know? What's the point of that? There's another word... There's another word for mild salsa. It's called ketchup. If I want ketchup, I'm going to ask for ketchup. If I want salsa, I want a little bit of a kick to it. I want some spice, you know? We're, we're in Southern California, right? So, so we think, I don't want to be mild. Who wants to be mild? Therefore, who wants to be meek? But I think we totally misunderstand what meekness is. The word that Jesus uses, or the word that Matthew uses, I should say, in this gospel, is the word prous. It's the ancient Greek word prous. Blessed are the prous. Here's where the word prous comes from. It's very interesting. Centuries before, when the Greek language was being developed, way up in the highlands of Greece, up in the mountains, there were these wild stallions, these wild horses, and sometimes the Greeks would go up into the highlands and they would capture one of these animals. And if you could capture one of these wild horses with all of its strength, with all of its power, with all of its swiftness, and if you could tame this animal it's so that it still has all of its power, it still has all of its capacity, but you're able to tame it and harness it so that it can carry a rider, so that it can eat an apple from the hand of a child you would say that that horse is prous, not weak. It still has every bit as much strength and capacity as it did before. It still has the wildness of the mountains in its blood. But now it's strength that has been brought under control. It can carry a rider. It can eat from the hand of a child. You would say that this horse is prous, not weak, prous. This is what meekness is. It's actually the polar opposite of weakness. Meekness is raw power that's been harnessed and converted towards a focused purpose. Blessed are the meek. Just a few days before Jesus is going to be crucified, he makes what we call his triumphal entry into Jerusalem. You remember the scene? 
There's hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people who have been following him from Galilee. They're all excited. They're waving palm branches. They're shouting Hosea uh, because they assume that Jesus is this conquering Messiah. They assume Jesus was going to lead a violent rebellion and kick the Romans out of Jerusalem and usurp control of the temple and establish a worldwide empire. That's what they assume Jesus had come to do. They, they, they think he's going to come and launch this revolt. Let's get our swords and Let's, let's let her rip. And here's the ancient prophecy that uh, Matthew connects to this event. As Jesus makes his way into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey, here's the, the verse that Matthew connects here. It's the verse that says, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, meek, humble. It's the same word, prouse, and mounted on a donkey. Now, ordinarily, when a conquering king comes into a major city like Rome, Athens, or Jerusalem, what is that conquering king going to be riding? A war horse. I mean, even to this day, if you go to any major city in the world, in the center of that city, there's probably going to be a statue of some dude on a horse. It's just the image we associate with a victorious leader, whether political or military. You always, as the conquering king, you're going to ride a horse in this military parade, in this celebration. Jesus says, no, 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 let's bypass all of that. Go find me a donkey. In fact, not just a donkey, go find a little child donkey. And he's, he's doing two things. Number one, I think he's making a mockery of Pilate of Augustus Caesar, of Tiberius Caesar. He's making a mockery of this whole system. But the second thing that he's also doing is he's fulfilling prophecy. Here's the ancient prophecy from Zechariah. Look at this. See, your king comes to you righteous and victorious. Everybody's like, yeah. But here's the contrast. Lowly and riding on a donkey. Well, that's not a war animal. That's a farm animal. Verse 10. I will take away the chariots from Ephraim and the war horses from Jerusalem. He doesn't need those things. In fact, he's going to get rid of those things. And he says, and the battle bow will be broken, those weapons of battle, because that's, that's not the way he's going to do it. Instead, look, what, look what's going to happen. He will proclaim peace to the nations. His rule will extend from sea to sea. And from the river to the ends of the earth. Now watch this. In the days of Jesus, when God launches his kingdom project, have you ever wondered, like, there's so many other people that God could have used who on the surface seemed very powerful, very influential, with loads of charm and charisma, I mean, he could have used, God could have chosen to use Tiberius Caesar to change the world. Tiberius Caesar was the Roman emperor. He's the most powerful man on the planet at the time, at least from a certain way of thinking. He's, he's the most powerful man. Tiberius could, could, could snap his fingers and change the way the world runs just like that. The Roman Senate at this time was the most powerful political body on earth. They could enact laws. They could enact policies that would significantly alter human life, just like that. The Roman military 
was the most powerful military force in existence. They had the ability to coerce entire nations into conformity with Roman policy. You had other you know, local power brokers, people like Pontius Pilate, men like Herod Antipas, Caiaphas the high priest. These are incredibly influential men with, with all kinds of clout, and, and they had the ability to do things, get them done quickly and efficiently. And God could have used any of them. But instead, God bypasses all of these powerful people. And instead, he raises up a young carpenter's son from Nazareth of all places, this no-name town. A man named Jesus who who is not going to ride into Jerusalem packed with swords, riding on a war horse. Instead, he rides on a baby donkey, and within a few days, Jesus is going to willingly embrace a humble, self-sacrificial death on Calvary. He's not coming to Jerusalem to, to, to kill. He's coming to Jerusalem to die. This is who God chooses to use to launch his kingdom project. And it's this man who God raises from the dead and lifts to the right hand of the Father and exalts as eternal ruler of all. Fulfilling the prophecy 1,000 years earlier in Psalm 2 when God speaks to his Messiah and says, I will make the nations your inheritance. There's that word. I'm going to give you the nations as your inheritance and the ends of the earth your possession. You see, Jesus is the perfect embodiment of this beatitude. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are the meek. He he says to the men who came to arrest him, don't you understand? If I wanted to, I could call down 12 legions of angels to come and wipe all of you out. I have power. And instead, what does he do? He stretches out his arms on the hardwood of that cross and prays for these very people. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Blessed are the meek. See, that's meekness. That's raw power that has been harnessed and converted towards a focused purpose. That's that's meekness that says, I'm I'm going to say no to my own self-interest in subservience to the will of God for the sake of others. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. That's exactly what happened on Calvary. And by stretching out his arms on the cross, Jesus is giving us an image, a model, an example of how we're to go about our kingdom mission. We are not to follow the way of Caiaphas, the way of Pilate, the way of power, the way of coercion, the way of charm and charisma, the way of prestige. We're called to imitate our crucified Lord, which means we're not called to be glamorous superstars for Jesus. We're called to be humble, faithful servants who deny ourselves, take up our cross, and follow him. Meekness, the way of meekness. It doesn't look like it, but it's the meek who will inherit the earth. I have some, these are not, these are not narcotics. These are, um, <laughs> these are mustard seeds. I just had these in our closet. I, I bought these a few years ago from uh, Nazareth in Israel. In fact, just today, I spoke through Zoom to our tour guide for our Israel trip. Uh, she comes highly recommended. Oh, yeah. Yes. Yeah. 
I, I learned that I'm going to research and get the right tour guide. And uh, so, so I connected with Zoom, and she's from Nazareth. But anyway, that's either, neither here nor there. But why do I have these mustard seeds? Um, I want to I read the parable of, of the mustard seed, and, and I want to talk about mustard seed Christianity. And here's the parable. It's one of my, it's one of my most favorite parables. It's very thought-provoking. Matthew 13, verse 31 and 32. The kingdom of heaven, or the kingdom of God, is like a mustard seed that someone took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of all the seeds, but when it has grown, it is the greatest of shrubs and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. Now keep that on the screen for a moment. On Good Friday, Jesus is brutally murdered outside the city walls of Jerusalem in front of a public gathering. And virtually all of his followers scatter in fear. His closest friends and family are emotionally crushed. And I think to any outside observer, if you were, if you were on the outside watching these, these events unfold, I think what you would say is, well, that's going to be the end of that. This would-be Messiah and the movement that he started, those mighty Romans, that mighty Roman empire has won again. They've snuffed out the torch of yet another failed Jewish Messiah, just like so many before him. They've once again put this man to death. They've crucified him. And I think you would look at this situation, you would say, that's the end of it. It's, it's going to die out. And yet, Christ's death on the cross is the mustard seed that was destined to take over the whole garden. Let me ask you a question. Where is that mighty Roman empire today, 2,000 years later? It doesn't exist. It's in the history books. It's been dead for 1,700 years. And yet, tomorrow morning on Sunday, in every nation of the world, in every culture, in just about every language of the world, whether underground or publicly, no less than one billion people will gather together to confess that Jesus is Lord and the world's true emperor. You see, that's an empire that stretches from sea to sea. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. I will make the nations your inheritance. Now here's where I want to park it, and I just want us to contemplate for a few moments. What does this say about the way we are to live and the way we're to go about our lives and our church life? What does mustard seed Christianity look like? What does it look like to walk the path of meekness as a person and as a church? If I were in Israel and I had these mustard seeds with me, there's, I don't know, there's probably over a thousand mustard seeds. They're so tiny. But if I were in Israel, what, what I do is I just, I just put these in the ground. And I might give it a little bit of care. But then I just sit there and let these mustard seeds do what they're already designed to do. Because a mustard seed carries within it the essential ingredients for its own spread. All I do is put it in the ground and maybe water it. But the growth of these seeds and the plants that they will become is not something I have to control. 
It's not something I manufacture. It's not something I engineer. The growth process is only something that I, as the gardener, cooperate with. That's my role. I don't drive the growth. I just cooperate with it. Mustard seed Christianity is the same thing. When communities of faith, just like Village Church, when men and women, just like us, give ourselves fully to the kind of life Jesus wants to give us, and we don't get seduced by the the glamorous and the grandiose, and we don't get sucked into the undertow of an us-versus-them culture war, I mean, we can have our opinions, that's fine. I'm not telling you not to have opinions. But but when we learn how to just be calm and content by the power of the Spirit, trusting that God is going to vindicate those who trust the way of meekness, and we allow the Spirit to transform us into people of humility, mercy, radical compassion, meekness, peacemaking. Let me tell you something. There is an allure, there is an inherent attractiveness to that way of life that just naturally, organically draws people and naturally, organically grows and expands in the earth. And I don't have to control it as a pastor or as a Christian. I don't have to engineer anything. I don't have to manufacture it. All I have to do is just cooperate. Because I'm just the gardener. I don't make plants grow. I water plants. I plant plants. I, I, I fertilize plants. But I just got to let nature do what nature already wants to do. Authentic Christianity is a mustard seed that carries within itself the essential ingredients for its own spread. I don't control its growth. I don't take charge of, I've got to grow this thing. I just, I just give myself to the life Jesus wants to give me. And I cooperate and allow Allow it to expand naturally and organically. Now, that doesn't mean we... See, part of having a garden is you do have some work to do, right? Like Village Church. Village Church, let's just think of Village as, as our garden. This is the garden we, we've been given. And I don't know about you guys. I want to see this garden grow. I want to. I want to see this garden grow and expand and become fruitful and plant other gardens until the whole world is like a fruitful orchard for God's glory, right? That's what I want to see. I want to see growth. And I believe we're going to see it. I believe that's going to be our story. But it's not because of anything we engineer. It's going to be because our whole focus is going to be imitating our crucified Lord. But there's work for us to do. I mean, we've got to be thinking. We've got to be asking questions like, how do we reach our community? How do we serve our community? You're going to hear a little bit about that next week. We gotta be asking questions like when people walk in for the first time, how do we connect them to our church? How do we assimilate them? How do we, how do we teach them about spiritual formation? How do we teach them to pray and absorb scripture? You know, we gotta we got ask these types of questions as a staff and as a church. We can't just sit on our hands and, and just be lazy. We, we've, got to, we've got some work to do. If you're a gardener and you've got a garden, you've got to tend that garden. You've got to take care of it. That's why last week I admonished you, always be looking for people in this room that you don't know and get to know them. Learn their names. Learn their stories. When appropriate, take them to lunch. Let them know, I'm glad you're here. So we're all a part of this. We all have to maintain this garden, Right? But the focus is not so much on how do we make this church grow. No. 
The focus, the mission is how do we become more like Jesus? I never hear Paul talk about strategies on how to grow numerically. What I hear Paul talk about is how can we walk faithfully in the steps of Jesus Christ? That's what he's obsessed with. That's what I'm obsessed with. That's what I want us to be obsessed with. And I think we got to be very suspicious and careful of our instinct for consumerism. I mean, we, we just swim in those waters and, and we, we think through that filter and we don't even realize it sometimes. Consumerism, it's, it's that instinct that a business may have. We, it's, it's, the whole goal is swift, increasing expansion through external techniques and marketing methods and so on and so forth. And so businesses who want to grow ask questions like, who's our customer? Uh, what does our customer want? How quickly can we give it to them? That's fine if you're a business, but I'm very suspicious of that instinct in me as a pastor. To think about pastoring and church life through a consumeristic mindset. And I've been that person before. And I find that its fruit is so unsatisfying. And unfortunately, I think so many of our churches and pastors and leaders get sucked into a consumeristic way of thinking about church life. And they see numerical growth, not as the natural byproduct of genuine discipleship. Instead, numerical growth becomes the governing principle by which every decision is made. And numerical growth is seen as this attainable goal that we can reach through attractional techniques. And the quickest way to attract people to your church is to ask, what do people want? What kind of sermons do they want to hear? What kind of music do they want to hear? What, what, what are they looking for? And let's give it to them. And it, it sounds great. And here's the dangerous thing. It actually works. I mean, you could build a large congregation thinking this way. But this is simply not the way that people are formed in the self-denying, self-sacrificial way of Jesus in which I am becoming less and Jesus is becoming more. Instead, when we think this way, what we're actually doing is we're reinforcing people's self-centeredness and their individualism, and we're training them to ask questions like, how is this church benefiting me? What more can this church offer me? Is this church meeting the needs of my family? Is this a good use of my time? Did I enjoy the song selection today? Did I feel inspired by the sermon today? When it comes to advancing the kingdom of Christ, consumerism is not our ally. It is not a neutral force that we should harness. Consumerism is an enemy that we must combat against. It may help us grow churches, but as long as we make statistical growth, our mission and our gauge of success, we can actually be quite successful according to our standards and feel validated by our metrics and yet utterly fail at our mission of becoming practitioners of the Jesus way of life. And that's the mission. That's the mission of Village Church. And it didn't begin with me. It began a long time ago. The reason we gather every single weekend is we want to learn how to become imitators of Jesus. And we want to allow the Holy Spirit to transform us into people who bear his image, people who bear his character. And the thing about that is it's a long, laborious process. It's a lifelong journey. 
and it doesn't, also, it doesn't always yield instantaneous results. Again, we got to break out of that consumeristic mindset that, that expects I've got to have everything at my fingertip, fingertips on demand right when I want it. We're used to that. We're used to having instant results. Therefore, that's the way we want our discipleship. We want microwave discipleship. God prefers a quality slow roast. So do I. So, so we've got to just be patient enough and humble enough to just embrace the kind of life that daily we just place ourselves under the heat of God's loving presence and let these pressures and these unrealistic expectations melt off of us. And as local churches, may we just follow the path of meekness and just continue the journey, gathering together weekly to worship, pray, share meals, receive teaching, and serve our neighbors in our community. And understand that's our job, to tend this garden. God's the one that gives the increase. Christ is the one building his church. His church will outlast all of us and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Amen? Amen. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Why don't you stand with me? And get your communion packets open and ready. And I want to pause just before communion. I want to give you a question, a few questions I want you to meditate on. As we, as we in our mind's eye, as we imagine Jesus, this scene of Jesus willingly having stretched out his arms on the hardwood of the cross so that everyone might come within the reach of his saving embrace. We're seeing meekness in its pure embodied form on the cross. A man who has the power, he has the capacity to destroy his enemies with the blink of an eye. And yet he chooses to willingly deny himself and lay his life down in subservience to his Father's will for the sake of the world. And as we contemplate the meaning of the cross in light of the third beatitude, I want you to search your heart and allow the Holy Spirit to perhaps speak to you. And I want you to ask this question right now. Where is Jesus, in what specific way is Jesus calling me to walk the path of meekness? In other words, where is self-denial inviting me? Where is God inviting me to deny myself in my life right now? Whether at home, at the workplace, in this very room, in what way or ways is God inviting me into the self-denying way of meekness? Where is crucifixion inviting me? Because I'm not just called to admire what Jesus did on the cross and say, thank God Jesus did that so I don't have to. No, he's the one who said, take up your cross and follow me. Lord, where am I being invited to take up my cross? To deny myself in subservience to your will for the sake of others. And as we share in communion together this evening, we're anchoring ourselves 
to this movement that Jesus created, this mustard seed movement. We're identifying, we're, we're absorbing it. It's, it's a way of saying yes. Lord, teach me to walk the way of meekness. Teach us to follow the path of meekness. Lord, to not, to not seek the path of prestige or power or influence. If those things come to us, great. But we're not going to live our lives in the constant pursuit of strength and power as the world defines it. Lord, we want to be called meek. We want to be the humble. We want to be those who deny themselves for the sake of your will so that the kingdom of God can come on this earth and expand and take over the world. We join ourselves to this movement tonight. Show us the way. Lead us down that path. And may we follow you faithfully in Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to today's message. To learn more about Village Church, visit our website at villagechurchburbank.org.